We are in a series called Move, and, and I'm so excited about moving into some of these texts written by uh, the, the great Old Testament character of David. What we're doing for the next several weeks is we're looking at David's life and then interpreting different incidents in David's life through the lens of David himself. You see, David is the most written about character in the Old Testament, basically taking up the books of First and Second Psalms, First Chronicles. But he's also one who wrote a lot of the Old Testament, writing over 70 of its songs found in that book we call the Book of Psalms. And so we began a couple of weeks ago uh, looking, or about three weeks ago, looking at the anointing of David. And then a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 23, the most popular of the Psalms of the Old Testament. Today, we move to Psalm 59. And I probably, if I were to guess, would guess that this is probably not one of your favorite Psalms. In fact, most of us, if we were asked, including myself, what is Psalm 59 about? We'd probably go, I don't have a clue. You know, it's kind of like the songs in our songbook. Back when we used to, y'all remember when we used to use songbooks, you know, back in the day? And, uh, and you'd have those songs that were your favorite. I mean, how many of you still know what 728B is? <laughs> I mean, so many hands goes up. Of course we know. We just got through singing it, right? Our God, He is alive. And, and so we always knew in our songbooks which songs were our favorite ones. And then, of course, occasionally someone would get up and they would lead one that no one knew. And you'd go, wow, that's in our book? Well, Psalm 59 is in the book, okay? It's in the psalm book of ancient Israel. But it is such a fascinating psalm if you put on the lens of its original author. It's absolutely astonishing. Now, just a little background. When we left David about three weeks ago, he had just been anointed uh, king of Israel. He's maybe 13, 14, 15 years old. Last week, we saw him move up the ranks and join into the court of King Saul. Uh, he begins by being a lyre player. I mean, he's a musician. Saul has got an evil spirit that's come upon him. And so David's been recruited. He's probably 17 maybe 18 at this time, and he's been recruited to come to the palace occasionally and play for Saul to calm him down. Now, about this same time, as he's traveling back and forth from Bethlehem to Gibeah, about 10 miles away, war breaks out with the Philistines. And, and we read in uh, Psalm chapter 17, excuse me, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we read of... Uh, Jesse sending David to find out how the war is going on. And he gets there, and of course you have the great encounter with Goliath. And he kills Goliath with a sling, chops off his head, and then he goes into the service of King Saul. Saul makes him one of his military commanders at, you know, 18 years old. Now, here's the problem with that. David is a skilled fighter. I think primarily because the Spirit of God's come upon him. And before long, everybody's talking about David. In fact, they're going out to fight. They go in into one of the battles. They're coming back home. And all the young girls and maidens of Israel come out. They've got their timbrels. They've got their lyres. And they're singing the number one hit that week in Israel. Saul has killed his thousands. But David, 
is tens of thousands. And starting in 1 Samuel 18, you see Saul as he begins to keep his eye on David. He tries to get rid of him all kinds of ways. I mean, he basically gives him men, go out and fight Israel's battles, thinking the Philistines will kill him. They don't. He thinks, I'll give him my daughter as, as, as a bride. And so he promises his oldest daughter, last minute pulls her back, thinking, that'll discourage him. It doesn't. He, he then says, I tell you what, I'm going to give you my youngest daughter, McCall. You've got to kill a hundred Philistines. That'll get him killed. It doesn't. And finally, he has to give David his own youngest daughter, and, and he becomes his son-in-law. Well, Saul finally decides, I'm going to kill him. And, and Jonathan steps in. Jonathan has become best friends with him. And Jonathan gets with his dad and says, Dad, what, what's wrong? What in the world has David done to you? And so King Saul makes a promise. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. In other words, give me a Bible, put my hand on the Bible, I swear, David's not going to be harmed. He goes back on that. David is brought into his court, and once again, war breaks out. So David gets his troops, he heads out into battle, he's incredibly victorious, he comes home, they're singing the song, and Saul goes nuts. When David goes in to play for him, tries to pin him to the wall with the spear the third time now. This three times this has happened. And David gets out of, the, out of the palace there, which wasn't a fancy palace. I mean, Israel's a brand new nation at this time. Gibeah is a very small city for a capital city. And so David gets out from, from the palace. He goes to his own apartment, his own house, where he and McCall are living, and he's kind of like, what am I going to do? Every time I turn around, Saul's throwing spears at me. And then McCall comes in. Text says, Saul sent men to David's house to watch it and to kill him in the morning. After David had left, Saul said, that's it. He's a dead man. He is a dead man. And so he calls his best troops in. He says, I want you to go. I want you to watch David's house. Don't let him get away. And in the morning, bring him to me. He's going to be killed. Only problem is, McCall's in the palace, evidently. She evidently overhears it. I don't know if she's in the hall. I don't know if she hears some of the soldiers talking as they're leaving. I don't know how it happens, but she gets wind of it. And so she heads back to their house, a house very likely that was built, and, and I'll show you this in a moment, that was built on, on the side of, a, uh, of the walls of the entire city of Gibeah. And so she goes back to her house. She walks in and tells David, listen, my dad's put a death certificate on you. I mean, you're dead if you don't get out now. I love the way the CEB said it. If you don't escape with your life tonight, you're a dead man tomorrow. And with that, you have the end of this pericope. And I want you to notice this whole pericope is seven verses long. Don't you notice that? Seven verses to tell of Saul planning on killing him, McCall going and saying, David, you get out, and then helping him escape. Seven verses. But here's what's more fascinating. David, after he gets out, writes about the story. 
We don't know how long it, it was before he wrote about it. But he writes about the incident, and notice it takes him 17 verses to tell his side of the story. And so seven verses from 1 Samuel, 17 verses from Psalm 59. And let me tell you that when you hear it from his lips, you go, wow. So let's journey through the song. It begins in verse 1 with these simple words, Deliver me from my enemies, O God. I mean, the first words he thought about. I mean, here's his wife saying, Dad's going to kill you. There's troops out there right now. I mean, you're a goner if you don't get out of here. And so the first thing that comes to David's mind as he reflects on hearing those words is, God, you've got to deliver me from my enemies. You know, all of us find ourselves in situations sometimes like that. And, and, and so I, I thought, boy, you know, if we could all of us rewrite this opening verse of this psalm, what would we put there? What would you put there right now? Deliver me from my alcohol addiction, maybe. Drug addiction. Sexual addiction. Deliver me, Father, from my boss. Deliver me, God, from my parents. I mean, it can get incredibly personal sometimes. Deliver me from my poor paying job from my financial woes. We have people knocking on our door literally almost every day saying, I can't pay my bills. Can y'all help? I don't know where you are, but I suspect every one of us, if we were asked to fill in the blank, we could fill in the blank. For David, it was real simple. Deliver me from my enemies, O oh God. Be my fortress against those who are attacking me. Now, you need to appreciate what's just happened. David, like I said, is living in a fortress, literally. At this time, this is not an actual drawing or picture of Gibeah, but it would have been something like this. Just north of Jerusalem, there would have been more trees and grass than what this picture shows. But these are the kinds of walls that ancient cities had. And you would live literally in these walls. You see all these windows. These windows are not just for fighting out of. People live behind them. I mean, the, the walls of these, uh, of these cities would be very thick because they would house apartments or, or houses. And so David would have been living in one of these. And I can just picture him after McCall came to him and said, Listen, Dad's got men out there and they're watching our house. They're ready to kill you. And I can just see David going to one of these windows and looking out and it's getting dark and he, look, and he sees people in the shadows. And he's like, what am I going to do? And, of course, it ends up being part of the song when he says, God, where's my fortress? This is Saul's fortress. But as soon as I get out of here, where do I go? And so he says, God, you're the only fortress there is for me. And, boy, if there's a message we desperately need to hear is that in all of our lives, there's going to be the day when we find ourselves going, where do I turn now? And the only answer is to God. He's the only fortress we can go to when there's nothing else left. And that's what David realized as he wrote this song. And boy, then he gets very, very specific. Deliver me from evildoers and save me from those who are after my blood. 
By the way, he knew who these people were. He had had fought with them. He had been in Saul's court. He knew who his best men were. Who was it that Saul was going to bring in? I mean, notice verse 3. See how they lie in wait for me. Fierce men conspire against me. Again, I can just see him as he's looking out the window. McCall saying, get away from the window. And David's saying, there's two down there. I saw another guy down here. I know who they are. I've seen them in the palace. And of course, David's thinking, oh man. Because if you're King Saul, who are you going to send in? Just think about that for a moment. Here's a guy who he sent to kill a hundred Philistines, and he comes back having killed 200 Philistines. Who do you send against a guy like that? I'll tell you who you send, Navy SEAL Team 6. By the way, this is the Navy SEAL team. Anybody know what they did? Somebody named Osama bin Laden. That's who took him out. And and I can't help but think that's what Saul did. Saul said, I want my best fighters. I want my best men. And I can just see David as he's looking out the window going, yep, I know who that is. Doesn't, Doesn't surprise me that he was sent. And so here's David See how they lie and wait for me. Fierce men, they conspire against me. For no offense or sin of mine, Lord. Tony read down to the opening line there, and I'm glad he did. Such an important text. I've done no wrong, yet they are ready to attack me. And what's so fascinating about this particular verse is that that word up there, wrong, is the same word that's used back in 1 Samuel 19.4. When Jonathan had got his dad aside and he said, Listen, let not the king, do, the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you. I can't help but think that here's David writing this song and he remembered what Jonathan had told him that he told his dad. And so that same word gets written into the song. God, I've not done anything to Saul. I've not wronged him. In a single way. And so I love what happens next. David calls upon God to act. And you see all the action words here. Arise. Arise to help me. I mean, how many times have you seen in movies where somebody says, all right, who will go with me? And a bunch of guys jump up. They stand up and they say, I'll go with you. And basically, that's what David is asking God. God, arise to help me. Look, God, just be aware of my plight that I'm going through. And we miss this, so, and I wish we didn't. Verse 5, you, Lord God Almighty, you, Yahweh Elohim Shabbat, you, God of the angel armies, you're the God of hosts of all things. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Boy, you see here, and a lot of people are like, why in the world does he jump on the nations when it's just a handful of men out here? Same thing that happens to me. When I get frustrated with one or two, I get frustrated with all evil people. You know, my prayer is oftentimes, Lord, would you come quickly and just finish all of this off? Which is what David does here. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. What's fascinating to me in this whole text is David is one of the best fighters in Israel. David, why don't you just climb down the rope? Why don't you just ease up behind these guys with your knife and just slit their throats? Why don't you do that? 
But one of the things that if you know anything about David is that David trusted in God and refused to attack his fellow Israelites. In fact, we'll see in future lessons, even when Saul is delivered literally into his hands, he says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to attack my fellow Israelites. Philistines, sure, they're God's enemy. Israelites, even those after my own life, I'm not going to fight. Now, later in life, he'll have to fight his own son Absalom. We'll see that in a few weeks. But David was bound to determine, I'm not going to do it. My question is, about what do you need to trust God instead of trying to handle it by yourself? You know, how many times if we simply prayed to God, God, would you stand up? Would you take a look at what's going on in my life? Would you rouse yourself to step into my plight? Because I've got to be honest with you. When Les Chapman tries to fix his problems, he usually just makes them worse. I mean, sometimes we've got to simply trust God. And then I, I love this text. You're talking about so real. They returned at evening, snarling like dogs. They're prowling about the city. I mean, David's mind went back, I suspect, when he was a shepherd boy and encountered wild dogs there in Israel. I mean, dogs were not like they are today. Well, not always like they are today. I remember several years ago, my son Kyle called me up and he said, Dad, uh, the neighbor's pit bull's gotten out. Now, if you've got a pit bull, I'm not saying anything about your pit bull, okay? Please understand me. But we had a neighbor who had a pit bull and, and she had gotten out. And, and, and my son Kyle said, I, I started to go in the house and she started running after me and I literally got in the door and closed it as she ran up against the screen door. And I thought, oh, great. I said, son, I'll be home in a few minutes. So I drove home, got out of my truck. Sure enough, there she was in my backyard. And boy, she was growling. Well, I had a golf club for some reason sitting up on my deck, so I picked up my golf club and I decided to run this pit bull off. And so I started toward her, just swinging that golf club, going, get out of here, get out of here. And the more I walked toward her, the more her teeth got like that right there. I'm serious. I finally got pretty close. She was crouched all the way down on the ground, had not backed up that much. I'm serious. And, and then I heard as distinctive voice, you know how Balaam was talked to by a donkey? I was talked to by that pit bull. And she said to me, you step one step more, and I want to take that golf club away from you and beat you to death with it. I'm serious. And so I just started easing back with my golf club. And, and neighbor got her up. She never was another problem to us. But that particular day, you, you learned that sometimes dogs can be quite ferocious. And that was David. I mean, he looked out, and that's what he saw. And then look at his words. See what they spew from their mouths. The words from their lips are sharp as swords. And they think, who can hear us? In the story, McCall lowers him down out of a window. It's, it's dark. There's no street lights back then. Maybe a little bit of moon in the sky. David had grown up as a shepherd boy in the summer. He knew the nighttime sky better than anybody. And you can see him as he's slipping through the city, trying to get out. He doesn't have anything. He doesn't have, his, it doesn't have a sword. His, his weapons are evidently back in the barracks. I mean, he's trying to get out of town. 
I mean, he's trying to save his life. He knows they're after him. And you can almost see him as he eased by, some of them waiting, looking up at his window, perhaps. And you can hear him talking. We'll get him in the morning. I hope I get to kill David. I'm so tired of that song they sing about him. And Saul, what do you think he's going to reward whoever kills this guy? The words from their lips are sharp as swords, and they think, who can hear us? But I suspect David had. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Y'all remember saying that as a kid? We used to say it all the time. We'd plug in, instead of words, we'd plug in names, but names will never hurt me. Nothing can be further from the truth. You know, when you turn to the Bible, you find that the tongue, James says, is a small part of the body, but boy, can it make great boasts like it did with these men. Consider what a great forest fire, or a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. I mean, the tongue is so damaging. You think, as David heard these words, he thought, Oh, God, please stop them from their wicked speech. And then he, I love what, what he writes next. But you laugh at them, Lord. You scoff at all the, all the nations that say things like that. I, I don't know if you remember the episode of Andy Griffith, but there's an Andy Griffith episode of where Opie is being bullied and giving up his lunch money every day. You know, at nickel he has to pay every day to keep from getting a, a, a fisk in the nose. And Andy finds out about it, and Andy pulls him aside and basically says to Opie, you're going to have to stand up to the bully. And he says, yes, but he, he's going to hit me right in the nose. And he says, you know, I got hit one time in the nose, and I didn't even feel it. Paul, you didn't feel it? No, I didn't feel it. I mean, you just go out there and you just stand up to this bully and, 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 and when he hits you in the nose, you just tear into him. And so sure enough, a few minutes, Opie comes in the jail there in, in Mayberry and boy, he's just messed up. He's got a big old black eye. Andy goes to him, Opie, are you okay? And he says, Daddy, you were right. I didn't feel a thing. I told him I wasn't going to give him my money and he punched me right in the eye and I tore into him like a Texas tornado. I mean, and I just laughed at him. And Andy said, well, good for you, son. I I love that episode, you know. I I don't know if we ought to be telling our kids to punch everybody in the nose. But anyway, it's it's one of those great scenes in Andy Griffith that reminded me when I saw this text. But God, what do you do? You just laugh at them. And then you tear into them like a Texas tornado. You're my strength. I watch for you. You, God, are my fortress. There it is for the third time. My God on whom I can rely. I mean, that concept of fortress makes Psalm 59. I mean, it's all the way through. It's the first part of the psalm. It's the middle part of the psalm. As we'll see in a second, it's the last part of the psalm. I mean, that's who he's depending on. God, you're my fortress. And then he says there, the last part of verse 10, God will go before me. I mean, he slid down the rope. He's getting out of the city. He goes over to where some of his men who serve him in the army, he goes over to one of their houses. Hey, get some of the guys together. I've got to get out of town. And the next thing you know, a whole group of guys have gotten up. They're sneaking out fast. They don't have water. They don't have food. They don't even have weapons. They just know David needs them now. And out they go. And away from Gibeah, they head. We'll see where next week. So David acts. He gets out of town. 
He trusts that God is involved in every decision he makes. One of the things in Scripture that's so important to realize is that God acts when we act. You know, I I can see some people who would say, David, why didn't you just stand there and look at McCall and say, you know what, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm not going anywhere. Saul can't touch me. That's not what he did at all. He realized that he needed God to go before him, but he was ready to follow you know, when you turn to Scripture, First Peter, Peter says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you. He's using suffering as an example here. And he says, leaving you an example. Why? That you follow in his steps. Christianity is not always a rose garden. We all know that. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be slander. There's going to be snide remarks. Paul would say, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. So be prepared for it. God anointed David didn't mean that David didn't have to suffer persecution. And the same is true of us. I know sometimes people say, you know, I've tried to live all my life for God. Why do bad things keep happening to me? You know, Job asked the same question. And so we just got to trust in God. And then here's the way he ends. But do not kill them, Lord, or shield or my people will forget. God, don't get rid of them immediately because people's memories are so short. He says, instead, you might root them up and bring them down. And then he goes into what he's talking about here. For the sins of their mouth, for the words of their lip, let them be caught in their pride. That word pride is so important here because what was Saul's number one problem? He was arrogant. He was so about Saul, instead of about being God, that he needed to hear what David's son would eventually write. Solomon, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so he goes on, for the curses and lies they utter, consume them in your wrath. Notice again the language. Consume them in your wrath. Don't let me consume them. You consume them. Consume them till there are no more. Then it will be known to the ends of the earth that God rules over Jacob. If there's a point that Psalm 59 makes, that David makes, is vengeance belongs to the Lord. It's his right to repay. And boy, he is just point blank on that one. So he ends with these words. I love the way he ends. They return at evening snarling like dogs, prowling about the city. They wonder about the food, uh, for food and howl if not satisfied. I mean, he's depicting wicked people as if, again, they're dogs. But that's what he's depicting here. Here's the fate of the wicked. They're never satisfied. And God will eventually take care of them. But watch the fate of the righteous. But I will sing of your strength. In the morning I will sing of your love. You are my fortress, my refuge in times of trouble. You're my strength. I sing praise to you. You, God, once again to make sure we get it, you are my fortress, my God on whom I can rely. Fortress. That's why I asked Blake to sing that song. And so here's the question. Where? Or perhaps better, who is your fortress? If it's not God, then you put your trust in the wrong thing, and especially the wrong person. Let's pray.
Father, thank you. Thank you for being our fortress. A mighty fortress you are. A bulwark never ending. And Father, let us like David in Psalm 59, when things are difficult, when we're facing enemies, when things are not going as we planned, Father, help us to put our trust in you. For Father, you are our fortress and our deliverer. And Father, if there's anyone here today who have never put their trust in you, help them to do so today. Father, and if we can be of assistance, Father, we're here to help them. So Father, thank you for Jesus, the one who truly is our Savior and our fortress. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here today. God bless you.